Hello and welcome to Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that delves into the stories behind the exhibitions on view at the gallery here in the heart of East London. Each episode invites a curator to be in conversation with artists, collaborators and other thinkers about the works and themes explored in the displays, giving you special access to the ideas that shape the artworks. My name is Jane Scarth, Curator of Public Programmes, introducing you to today's episode featuring Whitechapel Gallery curators Naya Yakumaki and Cameron Foote, who examine the pivotal role of women as both artists and as behind-the-scenes organisers within the Surrealist movement in Britain in the 1930s, explored through the lens of the 1936 London Surrealist Exhibition. They speak with arts historian Tor Scott and independent researcher Richard Chilito about the work and legacy of two of the artists, Edith Remington and Ethel Colquhoun. We also hear an excerpt from an interview with poet David Gascoigne, in which he recalls Sheila Legg's performance in Trafalgar Square in 1936. The exhibition is free to view in Gallery 4 and is on display from the 19th of May until the 12th of December 2021. Hello, I'm Naya and pleased to be presenting Phantoms of Surrealism, which examines the pivotal role of women as both artists and organisers within the Surrealist movement in Britain in the 1930s. It is part of the Archive Exhibitions Programme, which started in 2009 when we expanded the gallery and were able to introduce new curatorial strands. This programme is research-led and explores archives as an alternative curatorial resource. It brings to light histories that have not registered in the formal art history and takes place at our dedicated archive gallery. Today, the work of many women surrealist artists is gradually gaining recognition, with Eileen Agar's retrospective on view at Whitechapel Gallery this year. Nevertheless, the contribution of some figures, such as Diana Brinton-Lee, Sheila Legg and Stella Sneed, as organisers, secretaries, strategists within the early history of the movement in Britain, remains understudied. The starting point for this exhibition is a performance by artist Sheila Legg. On a hot June day in 1936, she appeared standing in Trafalgar Square, dressed in a white bridal gown, her entire head covered in a bouquet of red roses. Her performance as the Phantom of Surrealism, launched the London International Surrealist Exhibition held that year in New Burlington Galleries in Mayfair, and it made newspaper headlines. We did extensive research to locate the documentation of Legg's uh, historic performance. In addition, we researched works of that period by Ruth Adams, Eileen Ager, Elizabeth Andrews, Diana Brinton-Lee, Claude Cahoon, Ethel Colquhoun, Grace Palethorpe, Elizabeth Rakes, Edith Remington and Stella Sneed. In the exhibition, you can see these important works together with a remarkable scale model showing the original interior of the 1936 exhibition made over the course of the last year and presented here for the first time. Also on view are original materials from the Artists International Association. The organisation was dedicated to the unity of artists for peace, democracy and cultural development. It staged an anti-war exhibition at Whitechapel Gallery in 1939. It included a surrealist section that featured many leading women artists. In the gallery, 
you can see photographs, documents, and beautifully designed printed matter that reveal women's contribution to these groundbreaking exhibitions. The materials are drawn from the gallery's own historic archives, as well as from other national collections, including the National Gallery of Scotland, the Claude Cahoon Archive at Jersey Heritage Trust, and from a number of significant private collections. Many key works are included in this show. Don't miss the two self-portraits of Diana Brinton Lee. Brinton Lee becomes one of the key organisers of the London International Surrealist Exhibition and participates with her work in this major show. It's difficult to trace her career after that moment as she worked mainly in illustration for poetry books, caricatures and photography. We also have on display two works by Grace Palethorpe, an ink drawing titled Crustacean Caress and a vivid watercolour which is alternately called Sea Urchin or The Escaped Prisoner. Unlike many of her peers in the exhibition, Palethorpe didn't initially study to be an artist. Instead, she trained as a criminal psychologist, having been a surgeon in the First World War. After meeting her husband, a poet and artist called Ruben Mednikov, they developed together a mutual artistic partnership, thinking about the borders of art and the unconscious. She joined the British Surrealist Group from 1936 to 1940, and these two works date from the height of her engagement with the group. Finally, you can see two sculptures in the exhibition, Woman by Elizabeth Rakes and Swan by Elizabeth Andrews. They were both shown together in the Surrealist section of the Artists' International Association exhibition at Whitechapel Gallery and they're brought together again in the gallery for the first time since 1939. In this short excerpt, we hear the poet, artist and translator David Gascoigne, who was pivotal to the organising of the 1936 London International Surrealist Exhibition, interviewed by writer Mel Gooding. Gascoigne tells his side of the story of how Sheila Legg's performance came about. Can we go back then to... um the period 35 36 yeah. and, and to the period of the of the exhibition um, which you had well it got more and more exciting when opening day of the exhibition came along and I began to plan various things including this idea of uh, the surrealist phantom now Sheila Degg had written me a fan letter when the short survey of surrealism came out in 1935 and uh, I answered her and we made a rendezvous and I think she was living in a bedsit in Earl's Court, you know. And she had uh, nothing to do with the filmmaker of the same name, but the, uh, the one had an E and the other didn't, anyway. She was an attractive uh, woman. Uh, I, I, we got on very well. There was a time when she, she went to Paris for a time hoping to become a, a model of Man Ray, but I don't think she was quite his type and she was rather disappointed about that. Uh, at any rate, I uh, had this idea of making this series of so I pitched the idea of the head made of roses, you know, a rose bush growing out of a dress from Dali. But uh, I got Motley's, the theatrical designers, did all the costumes for the old Vic at that time in St. Martin's Lane to do a sort of wedding dress, which they did very cheaply, really. And then I got a, a Mayfair florist to make a mask of roses real roses, and we took her out to Trafalgar Square and had a photograph. My original idea had been that she should have a, a thigh bone uh, for a 
as this kind of scepter, but couldn't find one anywhere. And I went around orthopedic shops and finally came up with a leg, and as her name was leg, but that was what she carried around with her. <laughs> so that was your idea? Yes, that was my idea. This was in the nature of a stunt? Yes, that's and right. And of course the exhibition was, was sort of... Um... Well, Breton came to open it, uh, but Edouard wouldn't come until Breton had gone back. That showed that the rift between them had already uh, become quite serious. There's a famous yeah. photograph, isn't there, taken at the Burlington yes. Galleries? Yes, uh, In which Eluard and Noosh, I think, is in yes. the photograph, and Sheila Legg and yes. Eileen Agar. Yes. Riven Todd. Riven Todd was taking my place because I'd gone out on some errand. Is that why? Yes, I, I don't say I've that. Always wondered, I've always mm. wondered why you weren't in yes, that photograph. Yes, that's right. Collections and research assistant at the National Galleries of Scotland and PhD researcher Tor Scott speaks here with curator Naya Yakumaki about the life and work of Edith Rimmington, who features in the exhibition. Can you introduce yourself and your research into Edith Rimmington? My name is Tor and I work at the National Galleries of Scotland and I do a, a PhD part-time into Edith Rimmington and I, I basically became familiar with her work in the first few weeks of working with the galleries in 2018. My boss took me to the picture stores and I was sort of all starry-eyed, you know, because all the pictures were hanging on the racks and she pulled out one of the racks and at the very, very top there was just this tiny little frame, a wooden frame, with this painting of a flayed hand with butterflies coming out of it. Um, that's the work that we have called The Decoy by Rivington. And I was like, wow, who, you know, who, who painted that? And she was like, that's all Rivington. Um, and so I sort of went away and had a Google and I couldn't find very much about her. And I think that probably sparked it off. I wanted to find out who she was and what she was all about. It's actually amazing what you said does represent the fact that these artists are widely unknown to the majority of us. Can you say a few words to introduce Remington and her work? There's a word that gets sort of thrown around quite a lot when academics are describing Remington's work and it's disquieting. It's this sort of, I think it was George Melly who famously described it as that in one of his books, but she paints these really, really delicate, uh, intricate works that you want to get really up close to but they're delicate and beautiful but they're also revolting at the same time um, so they have that sort of delicacy but they also repel you um, but you want to know more and it's it's the same with her poetry as well and a lot of her poetry is quite sexual there's lots of themes to do with the sea uh, and the ocean and the tide and she sometimes has mythological themes as well that you find with most surrealists creepy but beautiful I think those are the the best ways to describe it how did uh, she become interested in surrealism and to what extent was she involved in the movement in the period that we're looking at, which is the late 30s? Well, it's, it's difficult to, to say with Rivington and I think a lot of academics who've looked at her work previously have struggled to put a biography together for her because she seems to be a bit of an enigma until she starts art school. We don't know very much about her teenagers. She gets married in 1927 and she moves to Manchester and her husband is an art teacher there, and he also ends up becoming a British surrealist. But they, um, they go down to see the 1936 International Surrealist Exhibition at the Burlington Galleries in the summer, and I think that just sort of sparked this obsession with her fascination. And uh, they, both, they both seem to join the group from then on. I'm not really sure what happened to her husband. That's more research to be done. But she ends up... I think it was, I think it was Gordon Onslow Ford who introduced her to the group, uh, and then... 
1937, she shows a family tree with the Surrealist Objects and Poems exhibition. And then there's the Whitechapel exhibition as well. So it's just those two exhibitions that I know of at this point. I think it's more in the mid-1940s that you see more of her, like, her poetic work. But those two exhibitions are quite significant that she was, that she was involved in. You mentioned the work Family Tree uh, from 1937, which is indeed uh, one of the two that we have in Phantoms of Surrealism. Can you say a few words about this work? Yeah, so Family Tree was shown in the Surrealist Objects and Poems exhibition in 1937. Family Tree is a weird one because I think it's her only photo montage that she's sort of painted into. It's in this amazing frame as well. So when you see it, it's like, wow. She seems to play with words a lot. So there is a... There's a painting called The Anarchoscopist, which shows a bird skull wearing a diving suit. And the bird skull is actually from a diving bird. So she's obviously, you know, this sort of genesis of a bird called diving bird. So she obviously plays with words quite a lot. So I've started to look at her work in a slightly different way because of that. And with Family Tree, you've got this jetty sort of stretching off um, into the night over the ocean uh, with a chain on top of that and then a snake weaving through the links on the chain and a ribbon as well tied to one of the links of the chain. And I think she's playing with the idea of family tree in a sort of very physical way. So if you, if you, this is just my interpretation, so this could be just, you know, completely off. But, um, you know, if you, if you put the jetty, the chain, the snake and the ribbon all side by side, they're all these long objects with different levels of softness and mobility to them. But they all sort of resemble each other almost in, in certain ways. So I felt like she was maybe playing with the family tree idea in terms of the physicality of that but I don't know she's an enigma so it's it's difficult to tell. I I really like the way that you explained um, family tree actually you're very right about the the points you're making about the objects that appear there and their association. The work originally displayed in the Whitechapel Gallery Artist International Association exhibition is now presumed lost Could you talk a little bit about Fallen Chariot from 1940, which is the other work we have in Phantoms of Surrealism, and the exhibitions where it was first shown? So Fallen Chariot was shown in the Zwemer show in 1940, um, but it was actually shown under a different title. So we have all these photographs in the gallery archives of that show. And in the very background of one of them, you can see Fallen Chariot if you zoom in. But when you go back and you check the catalogue, there is different there's different titles shown. So you can see that she's that she's changing up she's changing up the titles and she's also changing up the dates, like she did with, with Family Tree, changing the date from 37 to 38. So I think I think Fallen Chariot was called uh, Orgian Stables and it's also called it's called Palingenesis in the in the Zwemer Gallery show. So we know that that has three titles. So I was thinking that maybe the works that were in the the Whitechapel show um, they might not actually be lost. They they could they could be ones that we know of, but they've just had their titles changed, and, and that's part of the that's part of the frustration and also the intrigue with Remington's work is that you're sort of you don't know if you've already found it when you're looking at you know when you're looking at a catalog. You're not you're wondering you're like is that a lost one? Will I ever see it? Or is that something that I already know of that's a bit more famous now, but just has a totally different name? Um, yeah, it's part of the Remington riddle. We now hear from Richard Chilito, an independent researcher into the career and legacy of Eiffel Colhoun. He's interviewed by Cameron Foote about her extraordinary life and work. My name is Richard Chilito. I spent all my working life as a psychologist in the NHS, 
and I run the website ithalcahoon.co.uk. It all started for me in 1971 when I came across a surrealist magazine that was being published called Transformation, and it contained some quite extraordinary poems. And I'll just read out, if I may, the first couple of lines of one. It goes, Pygmy, diadem of body, Duanek, Duanek, Gree, Duanek, and so on and so on and so on. It was completely mystifying. And there was this bizarre name at the end of the poem, Ithel Cahoon, which I didn't think could possibly be a real name. And I thought the whole thing was just a great surrealist joke. Uh, but obviously, I, w- I was wrong. Um, and for some reason, I was hooked. I began to see references to her in various magazines and learned that she was alive and it was a her, not a he or a phantom. And later, I went to see her at her studio. Uh, sadly, I was too young and far too shy to make the most of my visits. But she did sell me one of her paintings. She took it off the wall and sold it to me, just like that. It was one of the most thrilling moments of my life up until then. And since then, I've written and edited a number of books about her and about her work. That's a wonderful story about your encounter with the artist and first of all seeing her poetry and then visiting her studio. But perhaps for those who might not know much about her broader work, could you say something to introduce uh, art and writing? She was born in India to English parents. Her father was a senior administrator over there. But she came back to the UK as a young child and and spent her formative years being brought up by an elderly aunt on the Isle of Wight. When her parents came back to England, they retired, um, she went to live with them in Cheltenham, where she attended Cheltenham Ladies College. And then she went on to the Slade School of Art in London, where she graduated in 1931. Now, fortunately for her, she was well off, comparatively well off financially, and never had to work uh, for a living. She was able to pursue a creative life independently full-time. So, in addition to being an artist, she was also a practising occultist, a magician, a sorceress, if you like, with an astonishing diversity of magical and spiritual interests. So over the years, she was a theosophist, she was a Freemason, she was a Druid, she uh, venerated the Great Earth Mother, the Goddess, and she's particularly interested in ceremonial magic uh, based on the old Jewish system of the Kabbalah. She learned the arts of casting spells, astral travel, divination and communication with spirits and angels. And she published several books on her interests. Um, She wrote a wonderfully titled novel called The Goose of Hermogenes. She wrote quite a well-known book called The Living Stones about her life in Cornwall. And she wrote a book, The Sword of Wisdom, about a famous magician called MacGregor Mathers. And in the late 50s, she moved from London to Paul, a small village near Penzance in Cornwall. And there she wrote and painted and meditated until her death in 1988. The start of her career, um, Colleen exhibited a few times in London immediately after graduating from the Slade, uh, including twice at Whitechapel Gallery in the 1930s. 
Yes. Can you describe briefly how her style was developing at uh, this early phase in the early to mid-1930s? When she was a student at the Slade, she developed a special interest in large-scale multi-figure compositions. And in fact, one year she won their prestigious Summer Composition Prize. And the best paintings of the early mid-30s continue that theme. In fact, at one point, she tried to win the Rome Scholarship in mural painting, but she was unsuccessful. But she continued painting these large-scale paintings of traditional biblical and mythological subjects. And several of the ones that were shown at the Whitechapel Gallery in 1935 are now in public collections. So one of them is now owned by the University of London, and another one is owned by the Government Art Collection. But also at the Whitechapel, she exhibited some large wall hangings of tarot cards. Uh, that was the start of her lifelong interest in the tarot pack, and she produced various designs all her life, culminating in a full-scale pack, full set of cards, in, I think, 1977. But at this time, in the 30s, she was still using traditional oil painting techniques, uh, tracing a full-size cartoon onto the canvas, building up the paint in layers, and often incorporating the golden section in order to make her uh, paintings more aesthetically pleasing. But even so, they always manage to look odd and quirky, and some people like them and other people find them very unsettling. But then in the mid-30s, she discovered surrealism, and after that, everything changed. And could you say some more about Carleen's involvement with the surrealist movement in Britain? Well, she came to Surrealism too late to exhibit at the Burlington House exhibition in 1936, but it's known that she did visit it, and subsequently she made contact with a Surrealist group in London. And she published a number of prose poems in their journal, uh, the London Bulletin, and in 1938 she had a joint exhibition with a man called Roland Penrose, who later went on to become a pillar of the art establishment, but then was a full-blown uh, surrealist. Now, the leader of the London surrealists at that time was a Belgian poet and gallery owner called Edward Messens, and he took exception to Colquhoun's occult interests and demanded that she give it all up and give total allegiance to the Surrealists. Uh, she refused to do that, and so he expelled her from the Surrealist group. His antipathy to the occult was entirely personal to him because a lot of the continental Surrealists were deeply interested in the occult, including uh, André Breton himself. So she left the group in 1940, but maintained contact with some of the painters. But relationships with the uh, Surrealist group went from bad to worse, because in 1943, she got married to a man called Tony Del Renzio, and the marriage was as disastrous as it was short. But Del Renzio himself had ambitions to take over the running of the Surrealist group from Messens, and so conflict was inevitable, and it all became extremely acrimonious, and she never exhibited with the Surrealists again, although she continued to regard herself as a Surrealist all her life. And finally, could you talk about the two works on display in the exhibition? 
Water Flower, which is from 1938, and Alchemical Figure, Secret Fire, which is from 1940. They seem to come from a moment when Kowloon's work is undergoing some stylistic shifts. Yes, that's true. Although Water Flower is painted conventionally, it has something of the surreal about it. Now, for Cahoon, surrealism and occultism were all about overcoming boundaries, breaking down the barriers between apparently irreconcilable states. So that might include the rational and the irrational, dreaming, wakefulness, male and female, or worldly and spiritual. Now, in Waterflower, there's a clear barrier, uh, and it's a physical one. In this case, it's the boundary between air and water. The aquatic plant, the water lily, with its flowers above and roots below, successfully straddles the boundary of the water surface, but the fish cannot. Or, if you prefer, you can think of it in spiritual or psychological terms. There are things that lie unseen below the surface of the water, below consciousness, but which sometimes can break through, become visible and become knowable. As she became more immersed in surrealist ideas, she developed a much more spontaneous style, which emphasised taking advantage of chance effects. And you can see that in alchemical figure Secret Fire, which is only two years later, but stylistically years apart, because it incorporates large stains of paint at the centre of the sheet. It's one of about 15 watercolours she painted at that time, which have alchemical figure in their title. And they're all about states of change and metamorphosis. When she was a young woman, she had an occult mentor called Edward Garstin, who was her cousin, and who sadly later took his own life. But he was very influential in her thinking. And at one point, he wrote a book on alchemy called The Secret Fire. So it may well be that she was thinking of this book when she was working on this particular painting. Many of the paintings in the alchemical uh, figure series contain references to the duality of gender. So Secret Fire has a female egg nestling in the transforming fires of the alchemical furnace. And the form, the rather flowery form, sprouting from the top, it may be an allusion to the crown chakra, which she knew about from her study of Eastern Tantra. But I think it can also be read of a stylized ejaculation of the male generative force, the so-called nectar of immortality. The painting then shows male and female coming together in the act of creating something new. Thanks for listening to this episode of Here Now. We would like to thank the British Library for granting permission to include the excerpt of David Gascoigne interviewed by Mel Gooding in 1990, which is part of the National Life Stories Artists' Lives series within the Oral History Collection. You can find all of our other episodes online at www.whitechapelgallery.org on the Bloomberg Connects app, as well as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and Soundcloud. Don't forget to visit the exhibition, Phantoms of Surrealism, from the 19th of May until the 12th of December, 2021. Bye for now.